Today we're in Isaiah chapter 9, a very popular, famous prophecy that you've probably heard many times as Christmas has come around annually. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, rightly dividing between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, that your word evaluates us, it confronts us, it teaches us, it encourages us, it ministers to us. God, we ask today that your Holy Spirit would do the work that me and my speaking cannot do. I ask that you would open eyes today to the truth, to see you, to see the need for Jesus and the beauty and value of Jesus. God, I pray that you would minister peace today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been driving down the road and you have that moment, already we got chuckles, all right. That moment where you come over a hill or around a turn and you see that car on the side of the road that makes you throw your eyes to the speedometer. I see you, JT. Where you come around the curve, you go over the hill, you see that car and all of a sudden you go, oh snap. Because you weren't paying attention or you didn't have the cruise set and you're wondering, am I in a position where I'm about to be in trouble? And because of that, the scene unfolds where you're driving and you look and you're looking at your speedometer and you're looking and you look at your speedometer and maybe you hit the brakes to try and slow down like officers don't know that that happens, right? And maybe they can't see the reflection of your brake lights on signs behind you and stuff like that. Probably can't figure that out. And so you slow down or whatever it might be. Maybe you just take your foot off the gas and you get past this wonderful car and then you start doing this. In that rearview mirror wondering, are those lights turning on? And the further you get that those lights don't turn on, you're going, okay, 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 okay. Now I'm over a hill around a turn. Okay, I guess I'm safe. Or you get past them and you're looking in the rearview mirror. Oh, maybe it's not me. Maybe they clock someone else. Did they clock someone else? They pull over. Whew. Okay, they're going to something else. They're going to someone else. Okay. Or, uh, and you know what's coming. Because you were breaking the law, there's potential penalty coming your way. And it's funny also, though, at the same time, when you know, like when you're in that place where you know that you're paying attention, you saw the speed limit change and you adjusted accordingly and you're not speeding and you see that car, you just coast right on by without a care in the world, without any worry or any concern. You just keep on going 
And on that day, you're like, there goes my friend, all right, upholding justice. And then you keep on moving. And I think this is a lot of what happens in people's lives in the world in relationship to God. That anytime you open the Bible or you talk about God or you pray or they're invited to come to church, that it becomes this, oh, let me check my speedometer, how am I doing thing where we start going, this idea, this awareness of God brings about that same like, okay, that's God, you know, do I need to adjust what I'm doing to try and get myself in the right position? Although there are many needs in our life, our greatest need is to be at peace with God. Last week, we went to Genesis chapter 3 in our Advent Christmas series, and we read about the first ever prophecy of the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve had disobeyed, they had sinned against God, their eyes were open, and God confronts them regarding their sin. And because they sinned and invited sin into God's perfect and holy creation, God had to judge that sin. And God pronounced curses on the earth and upon man and woman and the serpent. Yet in that judgment, we saw the very first promise of the Messiah who would come, where it said in chapter 3, talking to the serpent, that the seed of the woman will come and you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. And we fast forward to the New Testament where Jesus is on the cross and on the cross dying for humanity. Satan thinks, gotcha. That's the strike of the serpent on the heel of the seed of the woman. Yet on the cross, we know now Jesus Christ in his death on the cross, taking the sin of the world upon himself, was crushing the head of the serpent, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering shame and guilt forever. We're going to look back a little bit before that today in Genesis chapter 3, same chapter, but the account of what unfolds after they sin, before those pronouncements are made. In chapter 3, verse 8, it says this, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. See, Adam and Eve were in the garden, in the world that God created. And most of you probably remember the three words that God said after every stage of him creating what we see and know today. Everything he created, he stepped back and he said three words. What were they? It is good. Everything God created was good, perfect, flawless, complete, whole, no brokenness, no sin, no suffering, no pain. Yet Adam and Eve were deceived. They believed the lie that maybe God wasn't as good as he said he was and that he was trying to hide something from them. The serpent said, no, God doesn't want you to eat that tree because he knows when you do, you'll be like him, knowing both good and evil. And so they believed that lie. They disobeyed the direct command of God that they knew. They took the fruit. They ate it. Their eyes were opened. They recognized they were naked. And we find ourselves in this scene now where they were walking and then God was walking in the cool of the garden and they heard him. And what do they do? They go hide in some bushes. Let's continue reading in verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Although God knew where he was. He was giving him an opportunity to speak. And he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden and 
I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Just like that moment where we are aware that we might have done something wrong when we see someone who we could be accountable to that might have blue lights and authority to back up those blue lights. We can have a position of our heart to go, oh, momentary fear. Now, this is tremendously different scale of severity here versus the penalty of paying for a speeding ticket compared to the penalty of sin being invited into God's good creation. And so they hid, and I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man pulls some blame shifting, verse 12. The man said, well, the woman you gave to be with me. It's her fault. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And immediately we see sin breaking the relationship of the man and the woman where the guy just throws his wife under the bus before God and kind of blames God a little bit. It was that woman that you gave me. She made me do it. She was just so pretty. And I'm expounding. That's not written there. It was that woman that you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, oh, nope, the serpent deceived me. She did the same thing in her sin. Rather than humbling themselves before this God who sees and knows all, rather than confessing and admitting and go, we disobeyed. And I wonder, they didn't do that. Instead, they blame shifted which people still do to this day. And because of that, verse 14, we haven't planned to keep on reading, but the Lord God then cursed the serpent, cursed the earth, told the woman, you're going to experience labor pains, man. You're going to work your tail off essentially to try and get a harvest out of this hard and thorny ground now. You're going to have to labor for it rather than me providing it for you. And um, Even though in the midst of this severe, what seems severe, at an invitation of sin into God's creation, we saw last week the first pronouncement of the gospel was in verse 15. I will put enmity, talking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we see the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ coming on the cross. See, our greatest need, with all the many needs we have, our greatest need is to be at peace with God. After this account, we can see story after story after story in Scripture where people are not at peace with each other because of the ramifications of sin. Primarily because they're not at peace with God. We see people who live in fear and act accordingly. We see people who live in doubt and act accordingly. People who live in rebellion and act accordingly. Primarily because they're not at peace with God. They have that peace that was in the garden where they could walk and talk with God and not cower and not fear and not hide Because they had not broken his commandments, they could walk with him in pure elation and fellowship with the God of all the universe. But when they sinned and invited unholiness and and impurity into God's pure creation, God could no longer keep peace. 
He couldn't keep peace with that. Now, when we look at this word peace in the Old Testament, we today have our ideas of what peace means. More commonly, we think of it as a warfare term that, you know, nations are at peace with each other. Right now, we are in peacetime because we're not at war with other countries. And you might go, well, look around. We're not really at peace. There's lots of unrest. There's lots going on in our world that's lacking peace. All of that is consequences of sin. But we have kind of a standardized idea of what peace means in that sense. And maybe personally in our lives, peace means, well, I'm at peace. Things are going well. I, I'm not stressed out. I'm not frustrated. I'm not sick. I'm not lacking. Whatever we, whatever we bring to the table, this idea of peace. But if we look at the Old Testament word for peace, it might be a word you've heard before. And even especially around Christmas time, the Old Testament Hebrew word for peace is shalom. There's multiple words that mean peace and peaceful and peace-giving. The primary word in the Old Testament for peace is shalom, that maybe you've heard this before. But peace, uh, shalom in the Old Testament doesn't essentially mean the absence of unrest or warfare. It doesn't mean only political uh, stability. In fact, if you dial down more into the nuance of what the word means, it actually more so means complete or whole. You could say nothing missing, nothing broken. In fact, some of the pictures in the Old Testament where peace, shalom is given is, for example, in Nehemiah when he's rebuilding the wall that was broken and destroyed after he gets every stone put back in its place and the wall is rebuilt and it's rebuilt and it is complete. It is shalom. It is nothing missing, nothing broken. It is complete. It is whole. And as we recall what happened in the garden, we are mindful that before sin, there was that completion, that wholeness, nothing missing, nothing broken. It is good. But that was lost at the entrance of sin. Adam brought it into the world, into the garden, into his heart. Something that the holy and righteous God of the universe could not be at peace with. Because in his nature, he cannot dwell with sin. He's holy. He's other. He's different. This is why scripture says that sin separates us from God because he's holy, righteous, perfect, pure, and just, and therefore he cannot dwell with sin. And therefore, when Adam rebelliously invited sin in, God was no longer at peace with man. He said, I cannot be cool with this. We became enemies of God. If you look in Romans chapter uh, 5 and verse 10, Paul said that for while we were enemies with God, essentially, we were reconciled through Christ's blood on the cross. Another passage in Romans 8, verse 7 says, the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is enmity with God or opposed to God. That mind that they got from eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their minds became opposed to God. We were enemies with God. We were no longer at peace with God. Now, earlier we took communion and we looked at Leviticus chapter 22 where there were rules dictated for how you could come back to being at peace with God in the Old Testament, that you could offer a sacrifice of a bull or a goat or a lamb that had to be pure and spotless. In fact, I told you, pay attention to one phrase as we were reading all of that. It said, if anyone wants to offer a peace offering before the Lord, here's how you do it. 
the perfect and spotless without blemish. Sacrifice. And now we see in Isaiah, uh, really quick, we'll go there, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. This is a famous passage as well. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, this is talking about Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Upon him was our chastisement. Chastisement is a fancy old Bible word that basically means the punishment. My daughter, um, my daughters, when they disobey me, they have chastisement coming. I will chastise them according to what they've done. Uh, last week, my daughter Joey, three years old, uh, we were in the living room and I smelt something. And I'm not trying to be crude or off color, but I smelt something and I said, Jojo, did you poop in your pants? And she went, no. <laughs> now, why did she react that way? She could have just said, no. But she said, no. And I said, are you telling me the truth? I don't have poop in my pants, daddy. Starts walking away, not maintaining eye contact, trying to get away from me. Why? Because she just lied to me. Her guilty conscience is telling her that we are not at peace. And so she wants to get away from her father who loves her and wants what's best for her and is trying to care for her and is trying to help her and therefore is going to lovingly chastise her. I cleaned her up. We talked about how lying is not okay. And it probably went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> but because of that, she went to timeout and she let me know she was not happy about that. And I don't care. Upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. That Leviticus chapter 22, the, the peace offering before the Lord that again John cited when he sees Jesus approaching the Jordan River and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that Passover Lamb that would be sacrificed so that we who are enemies of God could have that chastisement that we deserve placed on him, the sacrificial lamb, where we could have peace with the holy, righteous, just God be restored. Had my daughter said, Daddy, I did poop in my pants. My response would have been a little different. I still would have corrected her, said, Honey, you're too old for this. You should be telling us when you need to. You should go to the potty. And today, we're four days dry. So praise the Lord. But... All of that to say, that is an elementary, cute example of what all humanity has done with God. That every person feels, until they have placed their hope in Jesus and Him taking that sacrifice in our place, until they do that, every time they hear about, think about, see, are invited to be around and participate, it feels like, uh-oh, Rearview mirror, am I at peace with that authority and that power? He took, this passage tells us in Isaiah, that he took the punishment we deserved. 
so that we could walk before him without shame, without fear, without awkwardness, but as children who don't have to look in the rearview mirror but can gladly come and sit on the father's lap. I forgave my daughter of that lie. She's three years old. There's a good chance that she'll lie to me again in her life, and I will forgive her again. There will be punishment, but our relationship's not going to be destroyed by that. And we have a loving father who has provided payment to himself. Think about this for a moment. If we kept on reading, if we fast forward to Genesis chapter 22 from chapter, 20, or from chapter 3, if we hop forward to chapter 22, we'd hear about Father Abraham, who had his promised son Isaac, who he waited for and waited for and waited for God to fulfill that promise. And God finally does and gives him his son Isaac, who is also the one who is to be the heir of the promise, who this seed that would come and save all of mankind would come through this Isaac. Many generations, all people of the earth would be blessed through this Isaac. And then God says, hey, go away three days journey, climb up a mountain, and I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. Uh, What? But Abraham trusted God to be faithful to what he had promised, takes his son up the mountain. When they're on their way up the mountain, Isaac's going, hey, dad, we're coming up here to worship, which requires a lamb for sacrifice. I know you're old, but is your memory failing you because we do not have a lamb? That's the Stephen Maris paraphrase. That's not literally what it says. Essentially, he's going up the mountain. They're preparing to worship God. And Isaac knows there is a perfect sacrifice necessary to worship God. And we don't have a lamb. And prophetically, Abraham declares to his son, the Lord God will provide for himself the lamb for the sacrifice. The Lord God will provide for himself the lamb for the sacrifice. And we know the story where Isaac's laying there and Abraham raises the knife and the angel says, stop. Now I see that you love me even to the point where you would not even withhold your own son from me, which is also pointing to Jesus, where Father, it tells us in Romans that God did not withhold his own son from us, his only son. That verbiage is there in Genesis 22, pointing forward to John where we can see that the Father loves us in not withholding his own son for us and so proving his love for us, provided the lamb for himself to pay the sacrifice for our sin so that we who have the guilty conscience, who know that we've failed, who know that we don't measure up, who know that we're not good enough for a good and holy God, who would feel tempted to keep looking in that rearview mirror, can cast our cares on the chastisement that was put on Jesus and know we have peace with God. Why? Because the Lord God provided for himself a sacrificial lamb. He took the punishment we deserved. Let's go to Ephesians chapter two really quick. I know we just as a church went through the entire book of Ephesians just recently, but there's a passage here in Ephesians chapter two I want us to look at as we consider this need for peace with God. 
and how it's made available to us. This is, again, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus that is mostly Gentile, meaning most of the people that he's writing this letter to are not Jews. They're Greeks and Macedonians and all of that. And he says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, not Jews, in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He's saying, those of you who in the flesh do not have the covenant symbol of belonging to God. That's what he's saying right there. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, hiding in the bushes, looking in the rearview mirror, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's why we take communion. Verse 14, for he himself is our what? No, come on, it's right there for your eyes. Say it loud. For he himself is our what? Our peace. He has made us both one, the two, Jew and Gentile. He's made us one before him and has broken down in the flesh, in his body on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Pause, telling you, you have to offer a spotless lamb, a spotless goat, a spotless bull. He's abolished and fulfilled all of that, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making what? peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached what? Peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jesus Christ is himself our peace. Where we had that guilty conscience going, can I come to God? And here's what people still do to this day. And even Christians can wrestle with this, where we, where we sin, we stumble. And I'm even careful of using terminology like stumble and fall because it makes it sound like an accident. No, when we sin, we choose to disobey God. We choose to go against our conscience. We choose to do what we know is wrong. And when we do, we feel that same guilt and shame that Adam and Eve did and they felt like they needed to hide from the God who was near. We do the same exact thing where we're looking in the rearview mirror going, can I really talk to this authority figure without being awkward and wondering, are they coming to me with the hammer? But Jesus Christ is himself our peace. And I love how Paul says he preached peace to us. Think about it. If there's ever two opposing forces, two enemies, two armies, if you will, and they're meeting and they're enemies, what happens is a delegation is sent to meet in the middle and present potential terms of peace, saying, hey, if you will surrender or if you will do X, Y, Z, we can have peace. And if we think about that Old Testament word again, shalom, that peace, when you're talking about two nations who were at war with each other, when they're at shalom, it doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It literally means, scholars have taught that that shalom between two countries doesn't only mean there's no longer conflict. It means that they have come to terms of peace with one another to the extent 
that they are going to now work together towards one another's best interests. That they're working together now, they're at peace, that they are now serving each other, helping each other, working together. So when we consider being at peace with God, we recognize that Jesus Christ is himself our peace and he's preaching peace to us today. I don't care who you are, what your background is, how bad you think you have sinned, what you think that you've done that God cannot forgive. God is better at saving than you are at sinning. I'll say that again. God is better at saving than you are at sinning. That's why Romans says that where where sin abounded, all the more grace abounded. Now, we don't use that as a license to sin. In the same way, the difference here and the relationship of someone who has come to faith in God through Jesus Christ and is then at peace with God, the difference ought to be now the relationship of the father. Just like with my little Joey, who I wish would have said, yeah, dad, I did do that. And the way I handled her reaction would have been different compared to how I did handle her reaction when she lied to my face. And I got to just go, liar, liar, pants on, nasty smelling. Our Father has made peace to where for the child of God, when we sin, not if, when, we sin. I wish my daughter would have said, Daddy, I made a mess. I made a mess. I'm sorry. I know better. What if we ran to God who has made peace available to us through Jesus Christ Rather than running away in shame, running away, hiding, going, oh, I did it again, I have to. No, he has ministered peace, he has preached peace, he has made peace, he has taken away the dividing wall of hostility between us and him. See, when you are at peace with God, you have the peace of God. When you are at peace with God, you have the peace of God. What everybody's looking for in sermons about peace is Pastor Stephen, I I want that peace in my life. I've had so much stress. Life has been so crazy and so stressful and all this is going on and this has happened and this has happened. I just need more peace. And that's not a wrong thing to look for and hope for and pray for. It's a good thing. But ultimately, the peace of God in our life, in those circumstances, comes from being at peace with God. See, when you have made peace with God, there is the peace from God that trickles into every area of our lives. This peace is non-circumstantial to where when things are going good and when things are not going good, we still have peace because it's the peace of God ruling and reigning in our hearts in Christ Jesus. It's not circumstantial. That's why Paul and all the apostles and the millions of faithful brothers and sisters that have been persecuted throughout the ages and even martyred, laying down their lives throughout history, that's why they could endure persecution and suffering and death Because they knew they were at peace with God. They knew they were in the right place with God to where those things, yeah, okay, they're uncomfortable or they hurt or they're painful or they're terrible, but ultimately I'm at peace with God, so I'm good. That's why Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 6 tells us, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? 
And you might hear a verse like that and go, what can man do to me? Well, you can even read in the Bible. Man can beat you. Man can stone you, Paul. Uh, Man can whip you. Man can persecute you and slander you and rob you and imprison you. Man can do lots of things, even to the believer. And to that, Paul would say, well, I don't consider the present sufferings of this world to be compared to the glory that's to come. Yeah, man can do that, but it doesn't compare to what I have coming. So let it come. Okay, Paul, you can tough out the suffering. Man can kill you. Well, to die is gain. Paul takes all of these answers of what could come and what could happen to us. What can man do to me when I belong to Jesus Christ? I'm at peace with God. Okay, I might have some suffering. I might have some persecution. Jesus would go on, (coughs) excuse me, talking too much. Jesus would go on talking to his disciples in John chapter 14. Let's look at what some of this peace from God looks like. John chapter 14, he's about to go to the cross. This is the last conversation he has with his disciples before he's betrayed and arrested and then beaten and crucified. He tells his disciples this. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. That tells us there's there's a faux peace that the world tries to offer us. And trinkets and toys and money and possessions and acceptance, there is a faux peace. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, because I'm giving you my peace. Not like the peace that the world gives. This peace doesn't fluctuate or be damaged by the stock market crashing or by lockdowns or by tensions in society or by job loss or by whatever might come in your life. The peace of God is with you through the Holy Spirit at all times. He said, I leave my peace with you. If we fast forwarded to the same conversation, John chapter 16, he tells his disciples, he's like, guys, listen, people are going to hate you for my name's sake. I'm about to go away and you're not going to have me with you anymore. But the Holy Spirit's coming, which is better for you because then you'll have me in you, not only with you, but in you at all times. And let's go ahead to verse 33 on the next slide. Jesus says this to his disciples. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He's telling his disciples, you guys are going to go through it. People are going to hate you for my name's sake. Many of you will be persecuted and even killed. In fact, John the Baptist, he's in prison when Jesus is there. And, and he sends a messenger to Jesus to say, hey, Jesus this is not going really good for me. I'm in prison right now. They might kill me. Are you really the one? And Jesus cites all the miracles that he's performing and says, yeah, pretty much. He's being, I'm the one. You're about to die for me. Now, this concept of peace for us, especially in America, is so anchored in our circumstances, in our comfort, in what we want, and in what we like. And we are being offered a peace from Jesus Christ indwelling via the Holy Spirit that cannot be shaken by any external thing. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean it's going to be all peachy and roses. But what it does mean is that when you are going through the crucible of suffering and fire and 
whatever trial and tribulation you might face, you can take heart knowing Jesus has overcome the world and he has given you his spirit to where even in things where you should not have peace, you have it. That peace that passes understanding, Philippians chapter 4. The peace of God ruling and reigning in our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace that people look at your life and go, how do you have peace right now when you're going through this? When this just happened, when you just lost your job, when you got a cancer diagnosis, when this happened to your family, how could you possibly have peace? Man, I've got Jesus. I've got the Holy Spirit, and I know where I'm going. Just like Paul, I can say, what can man, you know, I don't count the stuff in this world that I'm going through comparable to what is to come. I've got the Holy Spirit in me, giving me the peace of God, giving me joy, giving me hope, giving me comfort. And that famous list of fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that we tend to take and turn into a checklist of how we're supposed to behave. It's not the purpose of that list. It's saying, if the Holy Spirit has come in and changed your heart, you will look different than the world. You will have a love that the world does not have. You will have joy unspeakable. You will have peace that passes understanding, the peace of God through Jesus Christ ministering in in you through the Holy Spirit. All these things, if you know God, he changes your heart to where you look different and you bear that fruit. So today, two things, if you're lacking peace in your life, it means one of two things. Firstly, it could mean that maybe you are not at peace with God. Meaning maybe you have never seen that Jesus Christ paid your debt as the Lamb of God, making way to where the Father looks at you and you can have peace with God rather than looking over your shoulder in fear of what might be coming in judgment. When you place your faith in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, You ask God to forgive you of your sins and you repent and turn away from them. Ask the Holy Spirit to come in and change your heart. He can. He's made way to invite you back into the family of God where those who were afar off can now come near. So either that's you, if you're lacking peace, either it's that you are not at peace with God and therefore do not have the peace of God, or perhaps you are saved and you've taken your eyes off of the ultimate prize of our eternal hope in Jesus Christ, and you've placed your eyes on the circumstances, or perhaps you've even drifted into living in a way that is not true to your nature as a child of God. And because of that, there are things going on in your life that are not peace. You're, bearing, you're walking in consequences of decisions that you've made. Either way, the Father is saying, I paid for your peace. I paid for you to have peace with me, and I've paid for you to have peace from me. And my hope today is that the Holy Spirit would minister that peace to every person present and every person watching online. That wherever you are, whatever you're going through, the Holy Spirit can come into your life and flood your heart with truth, with love, with joy, and with peace, knowing It's not circumstantial, not based on what I'm going through. But if I've got Jesus, if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I have everything that I need. What 
can man do to me? One last time, let's revisit that passage in Isaiah chapter 9. The prophet Isaiah said, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. Let's imagine, let's envision that hope, a day where there is no end to peace. And bank our hopes in that last line in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's not up to you and your ability. The zeal, the passion, the drive of God will accomplish this. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is true. I thank you that your Holy Spirit opens eyes to see and believe. I ask today that you would do that right now. I ask that if there are sinners that don't know you, that have not come to terms of peace with you by placing their hope wholeheartedly on the sacrificial payment of Jesus Christ on the cross, God, I ask that you would help them see that they can place all their hope on Jesus and that they can have peace with God. They can see God not as that cruel judge who they might have perceived, but see you as that loving father who is inviting us close. God, I ask for anyone who has guilt and shame and condemnation that you would minister forgiveness and love. God, I ask you to change hearts today. And for those who might have drifted into things that have disrupted our peace, God, I ask that you would help us to set our minds and our eyes and our hearts on you that we could have our peace restored. And if there's any sin we need to repent of and, and get out of our lives and turn away, that we could do that, Lord. For the good of your people, and ultimately for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.